our brains are only capable of holding so much space. So the more we hold on negative thoughts or beliefs or opinions of others, like you're wasting precious inventory (laughs) that you could be using on your own creativity. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate, and this is the Freelance Founders Podcast, where we talk to creatives who have designed their own careers. We're so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible journeys with you. Welcome to the Freelance Founders Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with two-time Webby Award-winning content director and founder of Utendall Creative, Madison Utendall. Welcome, Madison. We're so thrilled to have you here today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. We finally got it I know. on the books. <laughs> I know. We're very thrilled to have you and like we're very excited to be having you included in the season two. I would love for us just to kick off, if you could just tell us a little bit about your career path and where you've started and where you are today. I have a very unconventional career and I always love to start sharing about my career that way because I think that it provides comfort to a lot of people who have jumped around. I have jumped around a ton and I'm really proud of it. I don't believe in a linear path. So I started my career in film and TV, thought I wanted to be an executive producer, go to Hollywood, and spent many years at HBO and had the opportunity of a lifetime to really start my career meaningfully at Last Week's Night with John Oliver. I had been on a bunch of different shows before that, but really at Last Week's Night, which is was where I learned how to be a storyteller. From John, from the researchers and the writers, I mean, it really was the most incredible boot camp on how to tell a narrative to an audience, especially around subject matters that many of us were trying to avoid as human beings. I mean, a lot of the alumni I was, I started last week's night with, or like one of them now is runs a writer's room of succession. So it was just like, it's just, you could just tell it was this incredible starting point. I got exhausted by working in news and, and it's a very challenging lifestyle. It's a 12 hour day minimum, six days a week. Unless you marry or or with somebody who is also working in that lifestyle, it's hard to date. It's hard to be, you know, in your early 20s as I was. So in that effort to have more normalcy, I went to Refinery29, where I started as the right hand and creative associate to the co-founder, Pierre Gilardi. Worked at Refinery for many years, ended up producing my own shows and being an on-camera host. And it was during that time that I made the the biggest transition, which was from producing and video to experiential marketing and social. From Refinery, went to Museum of Ice Cream, was the head of content and social there, founding partner, grew those those channels from zero to 450,000 followers and millions of impressions. But I've made this joke hundreds of times, but like when people ask me why I leave, it's the truest thing. Like I hate the color pink. I'm severely lactose intolerant. Like I just was like, this is really inauthentic to me. And I think we all have a threshold of how long we can pretend. Um, And I'm very honest about that. I was very much pretending to be a part of that world that was just so not who I was. And from there, I built my own business and decided, hey, if I could create an account and build a brand that had millions of people who knew about it around the world for something I wasn't personally invested in as a lactose intolerant, pink hating New Yorker, what could I do with brands that I was genuinely really excited about and with missions that I was super passionate about. And so that was the the birth of my own firm. And here I am. (laughs) 
I love that career path because I feel like everybody's really focused on the linear path. And I too come with a lot of jumping around and I have a very diverse background in, in my career. So I respect the hustle, but also I really respect that you were open and wanting to try new experiences and find what worked for you, which then created your own company. I would love to get a little bit more into how you decided to get into social media and content. Like what was that aha moment for you? Yeah. So when I was at Refinery29, it was like the glory days of media. So it's when BuzzFeed and Vice and Refinery29 and Tastemade and Huffington Post were at their premium, fully optimized, super fandom selves. And at the time, when Refinery29 had a photo stream that was company-wide, and you could upload photos, and the social media manager would post photos and tag an individual that she felt, you know, if she saw something she liked in the stream, she would share it. And you would gain, like, it was at the time when you, that would happen, or Fire 29 would repost, and you'd gain like 200 followers, right? Like this is when like social media actually <laughs> worked. And I became really fascinated by that. I became fascinated by the choices that this social media editor was making. I became fascinated by what performed and what didn't perform. And the beauty at Refinery29 at that time is that there was a lot of room for experimentation. And there was a lot of room to jump onto different teams and, and try new things out. So Refinery launched 29 Rooms, which is their first experiential concept. And they needed support with social media. And they needed support with them figuring out what their social strategy was. And that's really where I jumped in because there was an opportunity and learned how to do social and how to build social for an experience from the ground up when really no one had been doing anything like that before. This was like 2015, 2014, 2015, right? The early days of the pop-up museum. So that was the birth of it. That was the birth of the genuine interest. You've worked with a lot of brands and you've seen a lot of brands through their journey of social media. What do you feel is the biggest mistake brands make with their social media? Yeah. Based upon the nature of the industry right now, this answer used to probably change annually and now it changes quarterly. I think we are in a kind of a a moment of crisis. I saw yesterday on Today Explain, there was an episode that they released that was like Instagram's having an identity crisis, which I think is true. But I guess the thing is, what is what is right and wrong now on social, right? There's so much evidence that the algorithm and the larger forces at play are preventing people who are even doing amazing work and doing things right from getting the visibility and traction that they so deserve that they would have gotten years prior. So my advice to brands that are struggling or trying to figure it out or feel as if they're getting it wrong is like, you just have to be so culturally aware and so up to date now with social. And I find that most brands are stuck in the Instagram of 2018 and the TikTok of 2020. And there is little movement. And I understand, right? It's hard, especially big companies. It's hard to keep up with this, these quarterly changes, right? I mean, so big brands have their annual social calendars pretty much planned out. You can't do that anymore. Like you just can't do it anymore. It's now an industry that requires insane agility. So you got to be with it, I guess, is the feedback I have to give. I would agree with that because I'm currently launching a new company and everything else seems, okay, I shouldn't say easy, but seems manageable. And 
comprehensible besides social media and that launch plan. I think a lot right now, too, social media is about building communities. You know, you even see the the influencers creating their own sort of like they have their own community. And I think a lot of brands are trying to pivot towards that and find, right, what kind of community can we serve in this platform? But I agree with you. It's always changing. It's hard. I feel like I'm stuck in 2018 Instagram. I'm not going to lie. I think we all are. And the, but I think that's like, that's where we want to be, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's the pushback right now that's happening culturally with Instagram in particular, which is why like Kylie and Kim Jenner were like, bring Instagram back, right? Is that we want to stay true to what was working for all of us, which was photos. And yes, there's great harm in the curation of self and the photo editing. But the mimicry of TikTok, I think, is what's really harming every other social platform from success is that we've lost this idea of integrity of self. We can all be multiple things at the same time. TikTok can be TikTok and Instagram can be Instagram. Why do we have to conflate these two things and and have one? Because that's what's essentially happening, right? It's like a battle of the fittest. Unnecessarily. No one is asking for that. So it's an interesting time. And, you know, I I frankly say that for brands, especially new brands are about to launch. I don't encourage putting much time and effort into Instagram or to TikTok. Like, I think that social can be one of the biggest at this point, like, gosh, like biggest bullies into making you doubt yourself as a business, right? Is that like engagement is now down to 2.8%. That's not any business's fault. That's Facebook Meta's decision to make it harder for small businesses to succeed on social. So don't take it personally. Have one, have all of them. Spend 25% of the time you would have three or four years ago. Thank you for that insight. I do want to jump now to you have won two Webby Awards and you are also on the list for Forbes 30 under 30 in 2020. How did it feel to be so young winning these distinguished honors? I love that question. Thank you for asking that. The Webby Awards was like 100% one of the most incredibly rewarding, beautiful experiences of my professional career. I was working so hard at the time. Uh, I still work hard, but I was killing myself (laughs) at that time of my life. So it felt incredibly validating to be seen. It was a solo team at Museum of Ice Cream. So to be winning award for best social content for the year for Museum of Ice Cream as a one-person team was like, I mean, incredible. 30 Under 30 was an amazing feeling of validation as well. But I will say that neither of those things meant as much as to me then as they would now based upon where I was in my life in my early 20s. I think that we have built a society and culture that puts a lot of emphasis on those accolades and not a lot of emphasis on like the mental state of founders and of executives and leaders and how they got these accomplishments. And the reality is, is like 30 under 30 and what the Webby Awards, I sacrificed my mental health, my well-being, who I was as a human and while they were validating and amazing, I also really love to be honest with founders who are really striving for these things that like, I wish I had prioritized me before that. And like, I would give both of those things back 
if it meant that at that time in my life, I could have been a ha- happier and healthier person. But it was all meant to be that way. And I really believe that that is for me to be honest about and share. Thank you for sharing that honesty and that reality, because I feel like there is constantly that pressure of young founders really wanting to be on these lists, you know, and it's hard not to compare yourself when you're a founder or a freelancer to your peers, because you see them doing all these incredible things and receiving these incredible awards. But then if you're not getting those, are you doing something wrong? Are you not good at your job? You know, and it start, makes you really start to question yourself. So thank you for being so honest with us about that, because I mean, it's incredible what you've achieved, but a lot of people don't talk about kind of the downsides of what they were actually experiencing during those periods. Yes, absolutely. And the other reality is, is like, you have to ask yourself as a founder, as an example, anyone who's like in the running for these things, right? Is what is your why? Because if you think you're going to win a Webby Award or win 30 under 30, and like at the end of that golden rainbow is a billion dollars, like that's not how this works. You know what I mean? Like if your why is fame and accolades, like that's not how, that's not what happens either, right? Like there is you have to really believe in what you're doing because those things don't come with prizes. It's not like winning Wimbledon. You don't get $300,000 afterwards. You still have to go back and resume your day job the next day. So that's also my feedback for founders or whoever's in the running for these things. It's like, make sure your why is rooted in something intentional and rooted in something that will sustain you after you win these things. And for me with 30 under 30, like, all I really sought to do is like ensure that black women were represented on this list. And if my why was like, if one young black founder sees that there's a black woman in the marketing vertical, who's one then, and one black woman, no matter how old she is or where she lives now feels like she has a chance. Then like, I hope that's why I hope I get it. Right. Cause that's the why. And so winning it or receiving it was validating because I, my why was rooted in other people, right? My why is rooted in the Forbes community also remembering the importance of representation on these lists. I've seen people win 30 under 30 who thought their lives were going to change and man, oh man, depression fell right after on them. So asking ourselves why we do these things, why we want these things, I think is really should be a prerequisite even to applying. This actually takes me perfectly into my next question is, it's like people like you who have helped pave the way for women in the creative industry. Do you have any tips for the younger generation when they begin their careers? I find that these things don't happen overnight and no one is more deserving or entitled to these roles and these positions. And I find that sometimes with like super young generations fresh out of school, it's like, well, I deserve to be a creative director. No one deserves to be anything. We're all doing the best we can with what we have at this point in time. So trying to eliminate, if you can, starting the, your career in the creative industry, the timeline and the belief on when you deserve something, when you deserve the role, when you deserve that campaign release that belief completely when you start in this industry, because I would say that most creatives would say this. There's really no rhyme or reason, right? Like 
there are photographers who get their first big campaign shoot in their 40s who've been shooting since they were 18. And then there's a 23-year-old who becomes Beyonce's creative director. There's no like rules when it comes to the way that this industry works. So if you can give yourself the freedom of just trusting the process and trusting the timing of your life and trusting that if you do good creative work, your break will come when appropriate, you'll be able to enjoy this industry. But if you look at the 23-year-old creative director or, and have a judgment or the 45-year-old who's getting their first campaign and have judgment, this is a tough path to be on. It's one that really requires, I believe, a flexibility and freedom of the mind to allow yourself to also spend more time in your own creativity. If you're spending it looking around at what other people are achieving, then that's actually time taken away from you doing your work. I think the point that you also made was like being patient and allowing the process to happen when it's supposed to happen is a really important point because a lot of people try to plan and as founders and as freelancers, you're constantly looking ahead and constantly looking at how can we continue the business? We have to keep the business going. And you tend to lose sight of what's currently happening in the present moment. I read an article last night in the New Yorker about like how hard it is to do nothing, but how some of the greatest work, whether it's, you know, Greta Gerwig or Beyonce or Leonard Cohen or who, you know, whomever have some of the greatest work that they've ever done have come out of idle time, have come out of boredom, have come out of sitting around doing nothing, not having their phone. And I think that it's so important as a creative, it's feedback I have to give myself of like less occupying my mind with less focus on what other people are doing in judgment and using that mental space to, to be bored, to find my own creativity, to have idle time. Our brains are only capable of holding so much space. So the more we hold on negative thoughts or beliefs or opinions of others, like that's actually, you're wasting precious inventory <laughs> that you could be using on your own creativity. And it's so hard. It's so hard. And I'm not here to say that I don't, I don't have this shit mastered, but I try to do it as best as I can. I think it's hard for a lot of people, especially creatives. I think it's also really hard to turn off, you know, especially as founders. And that's why you have a team and that's why you have people in your corner who can run the business while you do allow yourself to take that time. I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about your agency, Udendal Creative. Could you just share a little bit more about who you guys are and what you're doing? Yeah. So Udendal Creative is an all-female design and creative studio based in Brooklyn. We are proudly anti-trend and are storytellers at our core. We believe that when we see a trend happening, we actually create and move in the opposite direction. And it's allowed for us to build beautiful and innovative brands that are, at, are actually pushing culture rather than adopting and assimilating into culture. And Udendong Creative is a product of two things. One, having worked in many male-dominant environments, wanting to create a space where individuals who are female-identifying could feel safe and comfortable and brave and courageous and confident in their work. And so that is a lot of the community that Udendong has established is by having this strong female-identifying cohort of, of individuals. And secondly, because a lot of us had been working in spaces where the work was very homogenous and copycat. 
And so these two forces have come together to establish this studio, and it's been a hell of a ride. We love to support an all-female-based team and, and founder, so love to see that. I would love for you to just tell us a little bit more, too, about how do you source new business and any tips for attracting dream clients? I mean, the witchy, spiritual, universe believer person of me says manifest. <laughs> You know, like spend some time meditating and really creating a mood board. And I really believe that a lot of these things are just the visual is, and I'm a super visual person. So put out on paper what you, what your dreams are. One of my favorite coaches is this guy named Brendan Burchard. And he talks about how we have all these goals, but we don't write them down and we don't look at them every single day. So if we don't achieve them, it's probably because we haven't actually been staring at our goals and facing them. And our goals can also be dream clients and dream investors or whatever it is. So write your goals down, write your clients down, like put them on a, your fridge or your mirror, like face them, actually confront and look at and stare and I, you know, dream of what dream clients are seeking to have. In terms of how do we attract clientele, it's a lot of self-promotion. So we have our own Instagram account and we have on our personal channels and through LinkedIn, we are our own greatest advocate. Everyone is their own greatest advocate. These things don't just happen. And so sign up to talk about your business. There's tons of opportunities to do panel pickers like at South by Southwest, or you can submit and tell the world about what you're doing. I really also believe that word of mouth is really important and that we've lost sight of the intimacy of face-to-face connection I will blindly reach out to someone and be like, hey, you know, uh, here's a little bit more about my business. Again, not in a salesy way, because there's a clear distinction between how people on LinkedIn hit you up and you're like, oh my God, okay, you're not even, you don't even know who I am. But if you know of a friend or an acquaintance that knows an individual that you've been wanting to reach out to, find a way to connect to them, find a way to talk to them and share who you are. And I would say the last thing that we do is we do, we did invest in a publicist and She's amazing. Her name is Sophie Will. Her company is Nude Nation. They are an amazing, super small boutique PR firm. And they specialize in small businesses and small female-founded companies. And I used to shrug my shoulders and roll my eyes at that type of investment. But it's worth every penny, every penny to have somebody else also advocate for you that knows your business really well. So those are the three things. I relate the most to the cold emailing and the cold reach out because I feel like so much of my freelancing career, but also for my new business has just been like cold email of just saying, you know, this is what I'm working on. And I feel like we could connect and have a great conversation, even if nothing comes out of it. it you're at least having that introduction and that human to human contact of talking about each other's businesses and how you could potentially partner or how you could potentially work together to help each other both be successful. I think in a lot of different industries, the cold reach out is actually one of the most productive ways to actually get where you want to go and fulfill those types of goals of working with your dream partners. For freelance founders, you know, we talk a lot about freelance practices within our community. How were you able to feel comfortable bringing on a full-time team? You know, that is a huge question. That's the scaling question, especially when people are starting businesses, is a big, intimidating question for them. So we would love to hear from you. 
we operated as a as an agency that basically hired freelancers for a very long time. Everyone technically was a free agent. It's only as of the past year that we've been able to bring people on full time and, and hire them as employees. And my feedback is ensuring that you have a profitable business. So don't undertake the cost of labor, right? Because there's a whole other responsibility when you put someone on a full-time salary until you show profit. And so when founders or, or people who have businesses that are hiring freelancers, I completely understand it's a delicate line, right? Because you don't want to lose someone really fantastic because you don't have guaranteed revenue coming in. And I've seen founders mess it up, right? Where they keep people freelance for so long that they end up losing them. But if you can start to save within your business in order to then hire, be able to hire those people full-time that are rock stars, do it. The other important anecdote is that we are intentionally a small team. So Yundal only has five full-time employees and we probably extend out to like 15 if we need per client that ha- the rest are freelancers. That's intentional. I have no desire to have a 50, 60, 70 person agency because I can manage it at this point. And so when it comes to growing your business, try to think small, right? Like you don't have to have a 20 person company. You don't have to wait till you have cash flow for 20 people in order to start bringing them on full time, but really invest and in, start investing in one person. And then it becomes two and then three. Don't think of it as inhaling a group at once. And I think that mindset shift will allow for it to be more manageable. I think that's where a lot of people tend to get overwhelmed where they're like, if I'm starting an agency, I need to have 15 to 20 people. And then they look at their books and they see that they can't hire that many people right off the bat. And it kind of goes back to just being patient and allowing things to grow organically. It is about making those small stepping stones to get to the big goal at the end, instead of just going from zero to a hundred. It's true. And I, and I will say that like, again, it ties back to kind of what we were also talking about previously, which is like, what's your why? Why do you need to have a 20 person agency? Why do you want to have a 20 person agency? If it's to, it's, if it's for showmanship to be able to be like, look at what I've done, then that's also probably the root of why it's so overwhelming to try to do that. Cause it's not rooted in like an actual value and maybe scaling the business is actually not what you're supposed to be doing. Well, and I also feel like a lot of these bigger brands are now coming to the smaller agencies because they're getting a much more hands-on intimate experience with the smaller agencies versus really massive agencies that it's just, they're just another client. They're getting that one-on-one attention, which is I think so important and especially being able to work with founders of the agency on the project. I would love to touch now a little bit on some of the side hustles or the side projects that you're working with. You recently launched Her Name Is. Could you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah. I mean, I'm a big believer in a side hustle. I encourage all my employees to have a side hustle. I encourage my friends to have a side hustle. It is so important to diversify your interests and your personal investment. I actually don't believe about doing anything 100% because there is, especially as women, we are so multifaceted and we are so, they're like hyphenate beyond. 
And the world forever has tried to put us into just like one box. So especially to other women, I'm like, have a side hustle, have other passions, do other things. Like don't subscribe to the stereotype that like we're only capable of one thing. That's total BS. But yeah, my side hustles and my side projects are always a part of me that is a product of of being super, super curious. They're often an example of something I'm super inspired by and like don't know how it's going to go, but want to give it a shot because I'm that inquisitive about the subject. So Her Name Is is a, uh, a show created by myself and my friend Tembi where we deep dive into female figures in history that have been lost to the public narrative. And we understand what her name is and who she was and why she has fallen out of the public awareness. And it's unbelievable. I mean, we all know this, but basically any major phenomenon from rock and roll to hair care products to you name it, there's a woman who actually started these things, but was like pushed aside for a man to come in at some point in history and own the narrative. So we dive in to learn about these women and we explore them ourselves and and then share that knowledge and awareness that we've gathered to the world through this fun video series. What a great concept. I think it's always nice to remember those that have been pushed aside that have actually paved the way for a lot of other women and people within those specific industries. So thank you for sharing that. You're also an investor at Human Co. How did you get into investing in young companies? I've done a lot of sweat equity investing. I really believe that you can invest in a business without having a ton of capital to invest in. And most businesses, especially if they're through friends or colleagues, will be open to some sort of sweat equity exchange. So I've started my investing through a lot of sweat equity or taking very low fees in exchange for equity. I bet on founders. So from Lemon Perfect to Gia to now Human Co., these investments have all been rooted in a deep belief in a founder and their mission and what they're seeking to achieve in the world. Very purpose-driven brands, brands that are not trying to adapt or adopt any trend and ones that are really rooted in the founder's personal story. So when I think of investing, I, those are my three criteria. And I don't, I, I will not invest in a trend. And I don't invest in brands that don't have really strong founders who feel really personally connected to the project and the product because they go to sleep with that thing every night. And if they don't care about it, and if it's just for the money, like, forget it. Your money's not going anywhere. Don't invest. <laughs> I can't agree with that more. I have given a lot of sweat equity. I shouldn't say a lot. I've given out sweat equity in my new business through friends that have supported me. And I have also done like swaps, like sweat equity swaps for clients and they've helped me and I've helped them. So I think it's so important to realize that there's other ways of investing and it doesn't always necessarily mean giving cash. Yeah. And not doing it for the financial return. Because the reality is it's what, less than 10% of businesses will actually see an acquisition, a sale, an IPO. And so if you're banking on these things exclusively for cash, walk away from that too. There are much safer ways to do that. Like go on Vanguard and double down on index funds. 
like Warren Buffett is onto something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there are so many other ways to guarantee a strong financial return than investing in a startup. So really believe in the founder and the product itself because you're taking a gamble and you want to bet on people that are like, when push comes to shove, you can advocate for because you believe in them. You know, it's one thing to believe in a product, but you got to believe in the person, the human being. That's the difference. 100%. I feel like I've come across so many people that have wanted to start a business, but they're not, they, they are very money focused. They're very much looking like, again, down so long term where they're like, oh, this, I'm going to make so much money off of this. And then they don't see it and then they give up on it. What advice would you give your 20 year old self? Your 30s are so much better. Don't worry. <laughs> That's one piece of advice I would give is just like, it all works out in the end. Just have fun. No, but to realize that like, this is advice I actually heard from somebody else. That is, I wish I could tell my 20 year old self that like, care less. And what I mean by that is that I spent a lot of time caring too much about things that in the end did not have much impact or consequence in my life. And if I could have just cared a little less and focused more on what brought me joy, I think I would have had a, de a smoother decade. So for 20-year-olds out there that are putting so much pressure on themselves to be the best, to get 30 under 30, to win whatever, just try to care a little bit less and use that energy to invest in your joy. Because the whole idea of like, happiness being an end state that you'll get after you get 30 under 30 and sell your company. Like that's not true. I think we have so many public examples of that, but it's hard to believe. So to my 20 year old self and to any 20 year old who listens, prioritize your own joy. Do that first. What are some boundaries you have set for yourself to maintain a healthy work life balance? Now that, you know, I've, I've learned it the hard way, I'm pretty strict about taking time off. I'm like, no one call me, no one texts me, I'm not available, we are not an emergency room, like, mm-mm. So strong vacation boundaries and time off boundaries, and it's for myself and for my team. We have, like, mandated five weeks off a year, like, really hard rules on that. Other boundaries are, I don't let my clients text me. No one gets my number. Like, Nobody. The only clients have my numbers are now actual friends. And I think that's a really good boundary to have. And I hear a lot of freelancers complain about that of like, my client is texting me. And I'm like, tell your client to move it to Slack or email. And there are so many other ways that you can put that without it being abrasive or rude. You can say, it's really hard for us to track your feedback via text. It is. So there's real excuses. Move everything. I always tell clients if they do end up finding a way to reach me, like, hey, can you can we keep this on email and Slack? It's easier to keep track of and have a record. And other boundaries, I am really strict about my morning routine. So I don't wake up and go straight to work. I have a very slow morning. It rarely gets interrupted. Every now and then I will break my own rules. But for the most part, boundaries of the morning routine for sure. I 100% agree with you on the no giving out your phone number, because if you don't set the boundaries with your client right off the bat, it's a really slippery slope. Like I've had a nightmare with a client that would call me, text me all hours. And there was just, and I just got to a point where I said, we'll only be communicating via email. Like 
You will not be able to call me. You will not be able to text me because it's just not necessary. Yeah. And it's them projecting their own lack of boundaries on you. You know what I mean? I'm like, listen, buddy, if you are texting me at 9 p.m., you need to go find something else to do. I am not going to entertain <laughs> you not having a social life. Like I want to live. You don't have to adopt your clients. So a lot of people don't end up going out on their own, either as a freelancer or, or starting their own business because of financial reasons. How did you approach your financial strategy when you decided to start your own company? I mean, I'm a big believer in having things lined up. There have been many times in my life where, I mean, when I was at Museum of Ice Cream, I was consulting on the side um, in order to save money to be able to leave, right? So like, I think it becomes super daunting if you're just like, I'm going to quit my full-time job with a steady salary and then hope hope to God someone knocks on my door with my first freelance gig. Start having those conversations earlier. When you know you're ready to leave your job or like thinking of going off on your own, find ways that you can start to secure additional income that gives you that courage when you do need get the opportunity to leave to at least be off on your own for a couple months. In the beginning, you do say yes to things that you probably wouldn't. I know I, clients I took on in the very beginning, I would never take on now. And so reminding yourself that like it can get a little bumpy in the beginning, but like I believe beggars can't be choosers, right? Like up in the early stages of being a freelancer, it's tough. But you have to remind yourself that like it's the early stages. It does pass. It's not a permanent state. But people like to bet on other people who've done th- things like this before. So if you're like, this is my first freelance gig, yeah, you might not get that dream client up front, but it doesn't mean you're not going to get it. So find a way to secure financial, like secure cash so that if there's a lag of work coming in, you still can pay your bills. And that might mean making the sacrifice of having to do work consulting while working full time in the very beginning. I feel like that's the number one tip a lot of people have been giving to freelancers since we started Freelance Founders. And, you know, sometimes it's so exciting to want to leave your full-time job and just get straight into it because you have a couple clients lined up, but you want to be able to ha- be in that position where you don't have to say yes to everything. And have higher rates. That's the other thing is that like, yeah, you probably might not, if you're always lowballing yourself, then you're never actually going to have the financial cushion to leave that job. So advocate for the highest of rate first. I find that I, I encounter too many freelancers who throw me the lowest rates. And I have to be like, um, I'm going to pay you market value. That's what you should be. And like PS, that's what you should be asking other people to pay you too. Because if one of us starts advocating for lower fees, then it empowers other clients to say, well, Jane is only charging $20. Don't charge $20, Jane. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it hurts everybody else. It hurts both the clients and the other freelancers within your field. 100%. And it's crazy because across different markets, I have clients in different countries, like the rates are so different. It's challenging, but also like know your worth at the end of the day. Don't be afraid to go in high because at the end of the day, like they'll either meet you or they might come down a little bit, but then have your base that covers your, your monthly expenses and your bills and everything, you know, you have to like sort that out, but great tip. And inflation. I had a friend of mine who's a freelancer was like, I just raised my rates to meet inflation. I was like, Oh, genius. I did. We all should be doing this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I went around to everybody and I was like, it's expensive out here. (laughs) 
It's so expensive. The rent is too damn high. Like it's true. It's expensive. Everything's expensive. But also you should be giving yourself like that bump up each year anyway for your services. Because if you were corporate, you would get a bonus at the end of the year. So give yourself that bonus for the next year in your rates. So I feel like we could talk about this for forever. (laughs) I know that's part two. (laughs) Part, Part two. Okay. So my last question for you is what is the one piece of advice you have for anyone wanting to start their own company? It's always scary. So just do it. It's never going to be like, now's the time. It is always a terrifying thing. Whether you have bajillions of dollars in the bank or none, whether you have a full team ready with you or you're doing it solo, like going off on your own is a terrifying thing to do. So you just have to go for it because it's worth every second. Even if it doesn't work out, what you learn about yourself and being a freelancer is invaluable. You learn that you are so capable. You learn that you are, I mean, you, you, I feel like you step into your power as a freelancer, right? Like of just like, whoa, I can do anything. And that's a confidence that I exclusively got as an individual consultant and freelancer versus being an employee. And for women, I think that's the best. It's the best thing for us is to have that reassurance and that reminder that we're capable of anything we put our minds to. Got to just go for it. You heard heard it here first, everybody. Just go for it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's always scary, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I don't have any is. kids, but that's what everyone says about having children. It's the same thing, mm-hmm. right? Like, you can read all the books and have all the classes, but like, whoa, when you get the baby, like, game on. <laughs> it's a totally different world. And that's what starting your business is like, or being a freelancer. I was just having a conversation with my sister who's about to go off on her own. And I was like, there's only so there's, I can give you all the advice in the world, but you're still going to lose, learn a hundred other things by starting Mm -hmm. things that you can't even predict. Thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. Great questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Madison. Thank you for listening to my chat with Madison Utendahl. You can find out more about Madison by visiting her website, utendahlcreative.com. To find out more about Freelance Founders, check out our website, freelancefounders.com. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Freelance Founders. We hope you'll share, subscribe, rate, and review the Freelance Founders podcast, which is available for free on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you and have a great day.